0: okay everyone why don't we get started it's 9:05 a.m i don't know how many people are in here but it's a lot uh, we had about 83 people sign up for force majeure and differing site conditions this is a presentation uh, open up your mic here mr batterman so scott batterman with clay chapman an attorney uh, an attorney from here in honolulu we decided to give a two-hour presentation on force majeure and differing site conditions before we get started and i open up the presentation um, to Scott. I just want to go through a little bit of the ground rules here. Uh, Your bathroom is six steps to the left across your family room floor. If you need to go, just go. Uh, The kitchen is probably two steps to the left of the bathroom, so you're on your own there. Uh, As far as using Zoom, if you've never used Zoom before, we're just using it for the first time. So when using Zoom, um, I would ask whether you called in on the phone or whether you're using your computer, I would ask that you please mute unless you're speaking. You can ask questions uh, in one of two ways. If you uh, have a question and you're on the phone, um, you need to have your computer to either raise your hand or you can go in the chat box and you can actually put a a message in the chat box. We have one question already um, from someone asking me if there are CEUs or PDH credits for certificate holders in AIA or CSI. And that answer is no. Uh, We haven't approached anyone to try to get uh, CDUs for this, but that's some, certainly something we can consider. If you have any comments after the after the presentation, feel free to email myself or Mr. Batterman, and uh, we will get back to you. <clears throat> so, without further ado, uh, why don't we get started here? All right. So again, force majeure in different site conditions. Um, force majeure in different site conditions on March 26. I'm Scott Jennings. uh, A little background on me, and then I'll turn it over to Mr. Batterman. So uh, we have offices here in Honolulu. Um, I've been in the construction uh, business as an engineer, uh, construction professional for about 30 years. Started my career out on the East Coast and then kept coming West. And I have been in Hawaii for about the last 19 or so years in heavy civil construction, having been an executive in a construction company, owning my own. And now we do consulting work, a lot of claims work, litigation support uh, with great firms like Scott's. And um, I guess now I'll, I'll turn it over to you if you want to take over, Mr.
1: Batterman. Thank you. Uh, my name is Scott Batterman. I'm with the Clay Chapman, Iwamora, Pulis, and Nervell Law Firm. I've been practicing law since 1980, and I've been doing construction law as part of that. And since I came to Hawaii in 1989, it's been the focus of my practice. Today, we're going to talk about two separate issues in Hawaii public contracts, but they're related in that they deal with what happens to the contractor when events outside their control interferes with the contractor's ability to perform the contract. Uh, The first uh, is going to be force majeure events, specifically here also because it's now topical as it relates to the current COVID-19 pandemic. And we'll also be talking about differing site conditions. Uh, Let's turning to force majeure first. Uh, What is force majeure? Force Majeure is actually a French term that literally means greater force. It was originally related to the concept of an act of God. uh, In other words, an event for which no party can be held accountable. Normally talking about things like an earthquake or a hurricane or a tornado. It originated in French civil law and it's an accepted standard in many jurisdictions that derive their legal systems from the Napoleonic Code which in the United States is pretty much limited to Louisiana and portions of the California law. But in English common law systems such as ours, there is no such doctrine. Um, here, uh, the, uh, it's controlled by contract. There has to be in a term uh, within the contract about it. The term is used in English common law systems to refer to a force majeure clause that's included in contracts to remove liability for events that are outside the control of the contracting parties. Now there are some common law doctrines, like the commercial impracticability, frustration of purpose, or impossibility, that may afford opportunities uh, for relief from breach of contracts or from other contractual obligations. But force majeure as it's used here is a contractual term. And I say this in part because when you leave here today, uh, when you turn off, you may want to look at your own contract terms to see what is or is not covered. If you have your own contract terms that you use in private construction, uh, you should really revisit those terms and think about what's in them. And we'll talk a little bit about little bit more about that as we go on. So as I say, force majeure clauses are an accepted part of contracts, but to have the relief, you have to have it in the contract and you have to abide the terms of the contract, whatever is in the contract. Now, most force majeure clauses will have a list of things that are covered. The better clauses will include a a, a catch-all phrase that includes... um, other uh, any other causes outside the control of the contract or words to that effect and with that let's take a look at hawaii public contracts now hawaii has a public procurement law that controls contracting for the state the county and related agencies such as the board of water supply different departments may have different contracts uh the department of transportation for example has its own set of uh General conditions and there's a link uh, that you've been given here that will take you to the general conditions used by the city, by the Department of Transportation, by the state, and by the Board of Water Supply. Uh, and the law that covers it, the Public Procurement Law, provides for regulations to be issued which control which control what can be put in a public contract or what clauses are required. And with that, we're going to take a look at the Hawaii Administrative rules, which are where you find these clauses. And we're going to start with the, the slide that should be in front of you now, which is Hawaii Administrative Rules, Section 3-125-18. Before I go any further, there's something I'd like to put into all of your minds, which is that in addition to the law that covers contracting, both the contracting law and the procurement law, there are also regulations. and even if you're familiar with the law, if you're not familiar with the regulations, they can have a major effect on your on disputes that you may get into. So that's just something you need to be aware of. So let's take a look at why Administrative Rules section 3-125-18. And you can see it starts with its default delay and time extensions for construction contracts. And this gets us into where you find the force majeure provisions, which is as a, an excuse or relief from a default or a delay provision. And it starts by saying the following paragraphs or similar statements expressing the intent of these paragraphs shall be included in all construction contracts. And after a number of other clauses, you get to number four, the time extension provision. And the contractors right, uh, the contractor's right to proceed. It's taking a step back. If you look at the earlier provisions of it, they talk about termination and uh, breach for delay. And then they get into four, time extension, and the contractor's right to proceed shall not be terminated, nor shall the contractor be charged with resulting damage if delay in completion of the work arises from causes such as, and here we have the list, and you'll see it specifically includes epidemics and quarantine restrictions. Now some people have asked me what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic and an epidemic refers to a disease actively being spread. A pandemic is actually a geographic term which indicates that there's epidemics all over the place. So as it now stands in Hawaii we are absolutely in a pandemic situation, excuse me, in an epidemic situation. So this clause is absolutely uh, Put into effect by the um, uh, the current situation, but there are other things to think about too. In this, um, if you look for, let's just say, an epidemic hasn't been officially declared by the state, or a pandemic hasn't been declared, there are, there are two things that can happen when this happens. One is the state can actually cancel or call or require all the construction contractors to stop doing work. They do that, then you're clearly within both the clause and under the contract. But the state and the city in particular are trying to keep construction ongoing. So if you're in a situation where your contract has not been called off because of the quarantine, you may still be affected, however, by the pandemic. Um, and this gets into the other causes here, such as, uh, shortage of materials. One of the last lines you'll see on, on this slide is shortage of materials. And this pandemic may result in a shortage of materials, uh, particularly if you're getting material from China or from any other place that is affected by the pandemic. So even if the pandemic is not shutting down your construction site you may still be affected by it and you still may be in a situation where your contract is delayed because you can't get materials or because you have a workforce shortage because some of your people aren't available so this is something to bear in mind Uh, if we can go to the next slide please the other thing is to bear in mind is that like every contract clause, there's always a requirement of giving notice. Every, every contract clause that provides for an extension, a modification, an excuse, there's always going to be a notice requirement. And we're going to see how these notice requirements may vary depending upon circumstance. But as you can see here, the contractor within 10 days from the beginning of the delay, unless the procurement officer gives you a further period of time, you must within 10 days notify the procurement officer in writing of the cause of the delay. Now with this current pandemic, it's likely that the state will relax some of these notice provisions, but my best advice is always not to rely on uh, after the fact uh, forgiveness, but to act in advance. So. If you already know, for example, that materials from China are not showing up, you should have given notice. And if you haven't, give notice now. Um, and this is very important. Again, you can't rely on a provision that has notice if you don't also meet the notice. provision. You can't rely on a contractual provision unless you comply with all the different parts of the contractual provision. So this is very important. Now I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the specific uh, contract clauses in the city, in the uh, uh, general conditions. uh, And these materials, you can pull them down from the uh, uh, website that you've been given Let's, let's let's stick here for a little bit. Now, I'll talk a little bit about um, private contracts after that.
0: Let Just me interrupt to, for a second, Scott, while you're here. So, um, in regards to what Scott is saying, if, if you haven't seen it over in the chat box or you didn't see it in the email we sent out, all of these documents, the HARs, the HRs, the Hawaii Administrative Rules, the Hawaii Revised Statutes, these are all things that Scott is pointing to. Uh, under the law. If you don't have those in front of you in the chat box, and also on the email, there's a link with most of the general conditions in the law in there for you to look at. That's what Scott's referring to. Thanks, okay. Scott.
1: Okay. And as an example, city contract. The city contract uses the, this exact same terminology, if you're looking for it, of default delay and time extensions. Uh, but the Department of Transportation and the state in their contract find it in, under the contract under generic time provisions, and underneath that, there's a provision for modification of contract time under the generic provision. In the state, it's section 7.21 of the general conditions that they're using, the interim general conditions. And you'll find that at page uh, 29. Um, and in this case, it says the contractor, they're not required to follow these provisions exactly. And this is important to realize is that you need to know what's in your own contract. You need to be aware of what's actually in the uh, general conditions, And you also need to be aware if, for example, the state has altered the general conditions in the particular bid documents. And in this case, it says the contractor must notify the engineer in writing within five work days after the occurrence of the circumstances creating the force majeure, the delay. So again, if you find yourself in these situations, you need to act within the time period. The city or the state may at some point you know, excuse a late notice, but it's better to be on time than not. And that's actually 7.21.5.1 and so they reduce the requirement to five work days. Um, and just as a couple of other things, for other issues involving time extensions, uh, for weather conditions, they only grant extensions for unusually severe weather occurrences, which you have to prove. Um, and then within 10 days after the request, you so you have five days in which to make the request, and then 10 days after that, you have to substantiate how long you think the delay is going to be. Now, if you can't say why, because you know the city's got a rolling uh, pandemic requirement, a, a rolling quarantine, then you say that. But you need to go through this carefully to see what, it, what is required. Um, now, looking at the state provision, they make explicit what I've been saying is is implicit in this. At 7.21.5.4, it says, time extensions shall be the exclusive relief granted and no additional compensation will be paid the contractor for such delays. This is a, it's not exactly a no damage for delay provision but it's typical. And to explain why, again, under contract law, you're expected to perform and force majeure uh, never provides for additional compensation. It's just an excuse for not performing, and some of the logic behind that is it's not the owner's fault, it's not your fault, and both parties are, generally speaking, damaged by this event. The owner always wants to get the contract performed as soon as possible, and the contractor, obviously, doesn't want to be delayed because of his ongoing costs. So the thought is, when something like this happens, both sides are responsible. But in your own contract, you may be able to negotiate something else. And let's go to the next slide. This is from a form of contract known as the consensus docs, which is something that the Association of General Contractors uh, supports. Uh, it, It was put together by the General Contractors Association Uh, uh, and the Association of General Contractors of America, a lot of people use the AA form. And the AIA form is not as forgiving as this one is in a number of ways. And as an example, as you'll see in this form, they they give a list of things that can result in a delay. Um, And if you look toward four lines from the... Bottom, you'll see uh, epidemics under J, adverse governmental actions. So there are a number of things that are better about the consensus docs forms. But then if you look again at 6.3.2, this is the overall delay cause. If you look at exhibits A, B, C, and D under it, they talk about acts and omissions of the owner or changes in the work ordered by the owner. Or encountering hazardous malaise materials are concealed or unknown conditions or delay authorized by the owner. If you go to the next term, A through D means you're entitled to get an adjustment in the contract price, but not the force majeure provisions. However, in your own contract, you may be able to negotiate something that provides for some sort of an equitable adjustment, even in a force majeure circumstance. In a private contract, everything's negotiable. And again, if you use your own contract form, I strongly urge you to take another look at it. And I strongly urge you also to, if you don't have a contract form that's ever been looked at by an attorney, you should probably have an attorney look at it. It doesn't have to be me, I'm not touting my own services here. But if you've never had your contract reviewed by an attorney, If you haven't had it reviewed by an attorney in the last five or 10 years, you should definitely consider having that done. There are a number of things you might want to put in there. uh, Dispute resolution provisions, other things like that. So again, construction is controlled very much by the terms of the contract. And if you're the party proposing the contract, you need to consider it. And if you're negotiating with the other side about the form of the contract, I strongly urge looking at the consensus docs forms instead of the AIA forms, because the AIA forms are not as favorable to a contractor as the consensus doc forms are. And one other thing I want to talk about is Board of Water Supply. If You go to the Board of Water Supply contract, uh, which is, um, if you go to page 44 of that, if you have a chance to download that later, they have a long list of things that you need to do if you're going to invoke force majeure. Um, They want a large chronology from you. They want a great many things from you. It's something to be aware of. If If you're the type that does any work with the Board of Water Supply, you need to be, or you're thinking about doing work with the Board of Water Supply you need to be very much aware of what's in their general conditions. And we'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute as we get into the general site conditions. Uh, Before I get into that, um, are there any questions, uh, uh, Scott, that you think uh, involving force majeure that you think would be good to be handled this time before we jump into differing site conditions?
0: Um, I've seen one or two questions come up. One of the questions you use a legal term, Scott, called uh, no damages for delay. I would um, like to hear what that actually means. We've heard that term before, no, no damages for delay. What does that mean to a, to a layman out here, a contractor?
1: Well, it's basically a clause in the contract. And in my opinion, it's an, an essentially unfair clause. But what it basically says is that if you are delayed, even by the acts of the owner, the the only thing you can get is an extension of time to perform the contract. You do not get additional compensation. Now, there are limits to this clause depending upon how egregious the owner's acts are, but these clauses are upheld and anybody who's involved in construction knows that these clauses are unfair to the general contractor. The general contractor, or, or also to a subcontractor for that matter as well. You have, they interfere, if, if a contract gets delayed, they may interfere with your ability to perform the next contract. You have continuing site overhead, you may have additional office overhead that is a result of it. Um, you need to be very much aware of what these delays are and what they, what they cause. Now, in negotiating a change order you can always ask for additional terms as part of additional compensation as part of the change order as part of the additional time. But it's a clause in the contract that you need to be aware of before you sign the contract. And again, it's a very dangerous clause if you're a contractor uh, because I have seen it applied and I have seen it upheld. Now, one slight benefit for construction contracts is if you have an arbitration provision and you can convince the arbitrator that in this particular case, the application of that clause is extremely unfair. The arbitrator can give you relief outside of the contract. Arbitrators have a lot arbitrator arbitration has its pros and cons. And one of the pros of it is that the arbitrator can do something that's equitable and outside the provisions of the contract and he really can't be reversed. A court does not have that same amount of leeway, but that's a double-edged sword. Of course, the arbitrator could also think outside the terms of the contract, that's not favorable to you. So, when you're considering whether or not you want to- We have a- Yes. Go ahead, ahead. Scott.
0: I have another question when you're ready. Sorry to interrupt.
1: So, So, if you're considering whether or not to have an arbitration provision in your contract, That's something that you should definitely talk to an attorney about because you can also craft an arbitration clause that better meets your needs. Another question.
0: So we have another question here. I'm going to read it and then um, it's not totally clear to me. Maybe it will be to you. But the question says this, if construction work is essential and Hawaii's supply chain is fine, wouldn't contracts be enforceable? And I don't know if that's from the general contractor down in supply or how you interpret the question, but that's what it says.
1: I mean, yeah. um, If... If, if they say it's an essential part and you're able to do the work, then you should be able to insist on the contract going forward. Um, the issue will become, I'm not sure which, which way you're pushing this. Um, if, you, if the city and the state have said that construction work remains, is, is essential, then you're entitled to continue doing that work. Uh, and the city is entitled to insist that you continue doing the work. The problem will come, however, is that even if, even in those cases, the effects of the pandemic throughout the country and throughout the state may affect your ability to perform the contract. Uh, you may not have a sufficient workers because of people contracting it. We've been very lucky so far in that it does not appear to have spread widely yet. But other places that have seen themselves as being lucky, have suddenly seen a massive upturn once it gets going. So uh, there's no way to tell. And the other problem, of course, is that to the extent that you're relying on materials from out of state and you can't get them, then you have an excuse for delay. So again, as I interpret that that provision, I, I will say this also. I have looked at the order issued by the state and by the city, and it's a little bit vague as to whether or not the, uh, all construction is deemed to be uh, an essential service. I've put in a request to the state to uh, clarify that, and they haven't gotten back to me yet. I'll note that as far as the city is concerned, I think the city is absolutely considering it as essential, and they're even talking about ways to increase the amount of work being done in part through allowing work to be done on roadways, uh, for, as an example, during the uh, pandemic, one uh, would previously not be not be able to do that because of traffic. So, I think that we need to contact the government. Uh, here's another point I would make: is that the Association of General Contractors is working to try to uh, in make the state and the city go forward with keeping construction as an essential item that can help the economy keep moving when we're not moving forward and and, on so many levels with tourism basically shut down, hotels and and all the tourist attractions shut down. If we can keep construction going, that's fine. But again, you should also be very, very alert to what's happening. Um, And if you should very much impress upon your workforce, and if they think they have something, they should not show up and spread it because if it starts to spread at one construction site, then everybody may end up getting shut down because the state will suddenly you know, be concerned that uh, construction sites will become a, a source of spread. So uh, if we're going to keep construction as an essential item and we're going to keep it going forward, then we need to consider what we have to do to uh, support the state in its efforts to keep the pandemic from spreading?
0: Yeah, I will say that uh, everyone here, at least the folks in Hawaii, we've got people here from Hawaii to North Carolina, but uh, at least in Hawaii, the mayor did make a statement, did put it in writing that's available on the web. And it did uh, state that water and sewer jobs were considered essential. So at least in in our main line of business, it sounds as if board of water, city and county wastewater, those sorts of jobs will go on. uh, And the city expects you to do that. I have another question here, let me see what it says here. Uh, so as far as uh, an actual force majeure starting, a uh, question here says, when does the force majeure start? When I declare it or when the owner tells me to alter my work schedule? Is there an actual hard start or if this
1: gets into notification requirements and how important that is? Um, it's basically, it. the force majeure starts at the moment you realize that something is gonna stop you from being able to finish the contract in the time intended. So everything is a separate situation, And it's a little bit different. If the government basically tells you to stop or slow down, that's not really force majeure. I mean, If they specifically direct you on your contract, you know, stop work, cease work, go home that is they're exercising a separate right under the contract, And then you have to look see what the contract says about the right of the owner to suspend the work and how that affects your right. And that's an entirely separate provision. Plus, in that case, the state is specifically ordering you under your contract. Now, if the state is just generically saying all construction stops, then you're looking at force majeure. And you should give the notice, basically, as of the date of the proclamation, saying everybody has to stop. Or as of the day in the proclamation, if the proclamation says all work will stop as of midnight on Tuesday slash a day at a minute after midnight on Wednesday, that's the point at which you you can no longer do any work. And you should give notice at that point. Under other circumstances, however, if in the course of doing the construction contract, you suddenly discover that materials will now not be available, China's not shipping, or uh, India's not shipping, or Spain, or or materials from Spain or Italy that you're expecting aren't going to show up. Um, or materials from New York, because New York is almost completely shut down. The moment you sh- everybody should be contacting their suppliers to determine whether or not the supplies are still coming, just in general. So, so the moment they find out that's the case, that's when they need to tell the state that there's an issue. And one other thing about the state um, provision, and This is something to consider also. This is language that does not appear in other provisions. Under the state provision, which is 7.21.5, it says, for delays affecting the critical path, they include the words affecting the critical path. So if you're in a force majeure position, but you're able to keep working around it, at least for the time being, or it doesn't affect the critical path, you cannot invoke that under the generic state provision. So it's something you need to bear in mind. You need to be able to demonstrate that it affects critical path. So materials that are the items that you, won't, that you would not need for somewhere down the road, you should advise this. You have more time to advise the state at the point at which it actually will become a force majeure provision. If it's not affecting the critical path today, it may be affecting it tomorrow. So it's something to bear in mind with everything else, it it really is at what point you realize you're required to give notice that it's affecting you. So it's the point at which you realize that you will be affected, or or the point you should have realized that it would be affected. I will say that there's not a lot of case law involving this, particularly in Hawaii, so hopefully we won't make new law and everybody's going to operate together and they will work on it uh, cooperatively, but uh, there are no guarantees um that uh, people will be reasonable okay and so now let so as go far on. as
0: go ahead go ahead go ahead Scott no, no go no, no. ahead
1: I was going to move into uh, different uh, site conditions, unless there was something else anybody wanted to talk about on um, force majeure.
0: I think we're okay for now. Nothing else coming up right now, so I will take you back if we get some questions on force majeure.
1: But I'd like to I'd like to go a couple of steps ahead. Move, if you could move two slides ahead. Next one. The one after that. This is something also I think people need need to be aware of, which may be coming up soon. Um, there is a provision in the law for emergency procurements, and if you're in a, and I think we're going to be seeing those fairly soon, with respect to uh, kitting out or creating hospital rooms and ICU units out of situations that would not out of structures that might not necessarily be. Um uh are not used for that. They're talking about using the consent the convention center, they're talking about using hotels. Obviously, there's work that's gonna to have to be done to make these feasible, and there is a provision in the statute 103d-307 for emergency procurements. Um and it basically allows them to just you know negotiate directly, order things and specifically says a situation of unusual or compelling urgency creates a threat to life, public health, welfare, or safety by reason of major natural disaster, epidemic, riot, fire, or such other reason as may be determined by the head of that purchasing agency. If you are capable of providing instruction or supplies or whatever for things that will deal with this epidemic, you should be considering uh, that this is something that may come up soon and that you may be able to make a supply to the state for something. So that is something, again, to be looking at. Um, And let's go to the next slide, and then then I'm going to double back. Okay, this is from Section this from the Hawaii Administrative Rules. in section 3-125-11. Let's talk about a little bit about differing site conditions for construction contracts. Um, this again is something that is, is controlled by the contract by and large, and the state specifically provides for two different types of clauses which can be used in a contract and different agencies use different clauses. And what, if you look at 325 11, the state lays out two separate clauses. Under 325 11, paragraph one, it says paragraph one, which, which we'll look at in a minute, or similar, similar statements expressing the same intent shall be included. In all construction contracts in which the procurement officer determines that the contractor should not accept the risk for differing site conditions, where the procurement officer determines that a contractor must accept the risk of differing site conditions, the clause in paragraph two or similar statement expressing the intent of the clause shall be included. Let's take a look, let's start with clause number two because that's the simple one. If you'll just go back, you need to go back. Um, one more beyond that. This is number two and this says the contractor accepts the conditions at this construction site as they eventually may be found to exist and warrants and represents that the contract can and will be performed under such conditions and basically that anything required because of unforeseen conditions, physical or otherwise, Shall be wholly at the contractor's own cost and expense, at the contractor's own cost and expense, anything in this contract to the contrary, notwithstanding. That is basically the you're on your own provision. And if that's in the bid documents, you need to consider how likely it is that you will find yourself in that situation and that you will then have to deal with it on your own, and you need to take that into account when you are bidding. And which uh, agencies have these kinds of provisions? Uh, The Board of Water Supply has it in their contract. And that comes as a surprise to a lot of people in dealing with it, because differing site conditions are. a very common function in the state of Hawaii when dealing with uh, underground situations. There's a lot of things under there that people aren't aware of that have been left behind. Uh, And in addition, even if there's any sort of a, a, a geotech report or an investigation, these reports are generally cover only a very small area. So if you're dealing with the Board of Water Supply, you need to know in advance that underground conditions are going to be at your own risk. So And you cannot rely on any material that they give you. And so they they will give you whatever geotech reports they have. They will give you whatever borings they have. But if it turns out that there is something that was left behind, that there's some underground materials there that were left behind by uh, a, an earlier uh, line or electrical materials or things that are not properly there, you are on your own. And the- So
0: this is a super, yeah, this is a super dangerous and extraordinary clause. I mean, for those of you, Scott's doing a great job of explaining it, but if you've been digging over in a particular area and it's been... Uh, dirt with no water table, and then you win the job and you start digging there, and it's rock with water table, that is 100% your problem. So this is an extraordinary and not, I would say, atypical clause. I just had a client who has a border water supply job. I couldn't believe this was even still in here. But like Scott said, this is uh, this is right there in the border water supply. I couldn't believe it, but this is uh, very, very dangerous. It uh, can be suicide for an underground contractor. Always look for a different site conditions clause in your contract before you bid the job.
1: And there's a similar provision in city contracts, by the way. The this, this city's general conditions include the same provision. Um, and Hang on. that's in section 3.9 of the city general conditions Now, it does have a license unless otherwise agreed and expressly provided for in the contract. So there can be cases where the city will include that in their provision, but you need to know, you need to make sure that it exists there. Um, And just some of the theory behind this is again, if a contractor is bidding on a contract and they know that they can get relief for different site conditions, they don't have to bake that into their bid so that they can give a lower bid. And then if there's a different site condition, the parties can work it out. If it's not in the contract, then you have to take a look at what you have going and it becomes very problematic, shall we say. So in bidding on board of water supply contracts, You need to bear that in mind. So now let's go ahead to the next to last slide, the state of different Hawaii conditions. Clause number one. Um, I'm sorry. Clause number one. This is the one, Scott? This is the one, yeah. Okay. This is clause number one. Okay. This is the one that, this is the clause that provides for a site, for a contract, for relief from the contract, For a price adjustment. And there are two different types of differing site conditions, which are generally referred to as type one and type two. Um, One is subsurface or latent physical conditions at the site, differently, differing material from those indicated in this contract. And that deals with cases where the contract specifically the plans and specifications. And a lot of lay people don't realize this, but the plans and specifications are part of the contract and any information you're given that's included within that information is part of the contract. When they say it differs from the contract, they're talking about what's in the plans and specifications and other information you've been given. And you see this a lot, by the way, in renovation contracts. And I've had a lot of litigation over this. When you're renovating a building, the state normally doesn't allow you to tear down the walls to see what's behind it before they put in the bid. So they, so they give you the as-built plans. And you should pay very close attention to the as-built plans and be very swift to act if, when you open up the walls, it's not as-built. And I will tell you that the as-built plans are very rarely, very rarely accurate. It's just something that I've seen. Now, the second type, type two, uh, differing site condition clauses, are clauses where you have unknown conditions at the site of an unusual nature, differing materially from those ordinarily encountered and generally recognized as inherent in work of the character provided for in this contract. Basically means you ran into something that nobody normally would have expected to have found there. And excuse me, and you get this sometimes with subsurface conditions, if you can demonstrate that the ground in the area through everybody's knowledge was normally of a certain type, but the area where you're digging, something unusual showed up that wasn't supposed to be there. Um, Now, at this point, they go go to the adjustment of the price. And this is obviously a negotiated provision but the most important part of it is giving notice. Um, The contractor must give the notice within the time required in this clause. You notice here, there is no time specifically there. You need to know what is in your actual clauses And this is just a generic piece of advice I give to all my clients whenever I do seminars, is somebody somewhere should make a list, a separate list of if this happens, I have so many days to give notice. And it's something you should look at before you enter into a contract, particularly also a private contract. Sometimes in the AIA provisions or in private contracts, the notice provisions will be very short. And again, if you're dealing with a reasonable owner who's forgiving, You know, he may grant you extra time. Again, if you look at paragraph C here, capital C, it says, no claim shall be allowed unless the contractor has given notice required in this clause provided however that the time may be extended by the procurement officer in writing. May be, but isn't required to be. It's always better to get the notice in on time than it is to be late and then to ask for forgiveness um and <laughs> looking at number e knowledge this is important also this is a controlling provision you don't get anything you get no relief under this clause if the contractor had actual notice of the existence of the conditions prior to the submission of the bids now how they would know that it's not clear but it this has come um and it's sometimes a good idea to take advantage of the uh, ability to make uh, inquiries prior to entering into a contract if you're aware of something that the state doesn't know of, to let them know about it um, in advance. Now, when we talk about this notice provision, um, I was looking at, the, at, at these provisions. And if you do work for the Department of Transportation, um, you need to be aware of their clause because if you look at if you could go to page 4-7 it, it's it's of the of, of the uh general conditions of the department of transportation No, um again they say this is what they give. Contractor shall promptly, before such conditions are disturbed, notify the engineer of, a, I apologize, this is something I should have mentioned. If you find a different site condition, you stop right away. You don't change it. You don't move it out of the way. You don't make any changes. You have to give notice before you change the, uh, Conditions so that, the, so that the owner can look at them. And 4.8, it says, you must of the Department of Transportation, you must notify them of subsurface or latent conditions different from those indicated in the contract or unknown physical conditions. Timeliness of notice. No claim of the contractor for any adjustment in contract or contract time under this subsection shall be allowed unless, the, unless you give verbal notice within 12 hours of discovery, or by 10 a.m. the next working day, whichever is later of the differing site condition. And then you have to give written notice no later than five days after discovery of the site condition. So that is a very short period of time. And if you give verbal notice, I suggest, you know, you also send an email saying this will confirm that I gave verbal notice because you want a record of it. Um, but that is a exceptionally short uh, notice provision. Um, now the state, in general, has the good provision um, in its in its. Laws um, and they don't give a specific time period. Well, Scott, yeah. While Scott is looking up that
0: information, I'll, I'll echo what he said before. You know what? What I always did when I was in business, um, it is a very good practice to consult your attorney before, especially on the private contracts. The public contract, you don't have a choice, but I would highly recommend that before you enter any contract, you have an attorney look over the terms of the contract. So like I said, the state of Hawaii, the city and county Honolulu, a little border water, you're not going to get anything modified in that contract, but to the extent that you can have any sort of negotiation with the owner prior to entering a contract or bidding a job on the private side, we always hired someone like you know Scott or another firm to basically look through the, the contract and see what was in there to see if we could modify any of the language. The second thing I would highly recommend, which he also uh, stated to you a few minutes ago, is whether you do it yourself in-house or whether you hire Scott or another firm to go through and map all the notification requirements, you will find case law across the country. I don't know about in the state of Hawaii, but you will find case law across the country where if you did not satisfy the three-day notice and you got it on the fourth day, you get zero. So these, uh, these clauses are upheld and it enters court or mediation or arbitration or whatever. So I can comment on that, but there is case law on the fact that, hey, it was a three-day notification requirement. Sorry you hit it on the fourth day. You are out of here. Next.
1: Generally speaking, government contracts are rigorously enforced. There is a, a, an, an, a very ancient expression that says a man must turn square corners when he deals with the government which is basically you have to meet their requirements. Looking at the um, differing second condition form of the state, they use the, the provision exactly, which says you must promptly notify, but it doesn't give any specific time. So that becomes a, a somewhat squeaky area. Now, in terms of dispute resolution... Um, this Let me interrupt
0: you, Scott, real quick. I have a question on topic here real quick before you move on to this few resolution. We have a question here from, from Chris. Uh, have you ever seen the notifications clause in the state contract been enforced? i.e. different conditions were found and verbal notice given 36 hours later or written notice given later than five days? Also, when does that time start? Sometimes different conditions are encountered but not treated as a change until further exploration is encountered.
1: I have seen the state stand on that in its negotiations. I haven't seen it. Um, the, n- very rarely do people take the state to court, not because that's their bread and butter, and, they, and the state and the city, then you try to work things out. Um, I was just going to note that the state and the city do not arbitrate. There are no arbitration provisions in these contracts. They go to court, and court is expensive, and by and large, the courts will enforce it. I will note, however, that if you have a good relationship with the engineer that's involved with the, um, uh, that, that that's monitoring the project, normally you work it out with them. Normally, the, the, if you have a good relationship and they like your work and they want you know, to keep bidding on these jobs because they like how you do the work, you have a leg up. Admittedly, it's the government, but a lot of these people are in these positions for years and years. And you can develop a relationship with them. And if you develop a relationship and they like your work and they like what you're doing, they will stick with you on that. Now, in private contracts, you're dealing with arbitrators. And the problem you have with arbitration is there's there's no record really made of the arbitration. There's no list of you know arbitration decisions they're not precedent in any way and on top of all of that every arbitrator can do whatever they want the general the rule is an arbitrator doesn't have to follow except in labor arbitration which is a separate issue entirely in (coughs) in contract arbitration the arbitrator has pretty much carte blanche to do what they want whatever they think is a right and appropriate in the circumstances, so you you can get a little bit more leeway with it, but I have seen cases where if the if the state doesn't like the work you're doing and thinks that you know in, in general doesn't like doesn't have a good relationship with you, they will very strongly enforce their rights under the contract. so I have seen that um But that covers most of what uh, I was gonna cover in my hour of talking about differing site conditions and uh, uh, force majeure. I'll open it to questions about that or any other issue involving government contracts that you may have on your mind. Uh, Scott and I are probably gonna do some other webinars in the future dealing with other construction issues. And if there's particular topics or areas that you're specifically interested in, you can ask a question about that And I'll give a short answer, but uh, it will give us a clue as to what other areas people might want to see uh, webinars on in the future. So I'll open that up to other questions at this time.
0: Yeah, so if you have a question, just go ahead and type it in the chat box. I've seen some questions coming in. I have a couple others floating around here, Scott, I'll throw at you. So uh, in regards to different site conditions, a lot of times when you read in the contract, the geotechnical report, uh, it's in the contract, but it's not in the contract. A lot of times it's just not very clear. so in the cases where it's not clearly defined, um, and maybe they're just being silent on it. Did do a technical report um, when that's in the contract or not, when can it be enforced? Can you just comment on that?
1: Yes, um, you need to actually read the contract and what it says is part of it. and you also need need to look at the bid documents um, and the bid that came out um, in the state in the state of Hawaii the bid documents are essentially the contract. And because the contract you assign is, is only like two or three pages saying that the bid you put in is what you have. Um, it depends, really. You have to look at the language of the contract and of the bid and what they're saying about it. Uh, there is a very famous case in California, which has been followed around the country, where they threw in a geotechnical report but they also said, um, we're not guaranteeing that what you find is going to be what you, what you see is what you're going to get. And in that regard, um, if you end up needing to use, um, so, so this also gets a little bit into the concept of the Spearin Doctrine, which I'll just go very briefly, which, is that, which says that the government warrants that if it gives you plans or specifications, you can build according to them. So it depends, again, whether the, the, the geotechnical report is considered part of the plans and specifications. But in that case, they said the spirit doctrine didn't apply because the government specifically said in its thing, we're not warranting that what you see here are the actual conditions you're going to get. And that was upheld. So it really depends. If you're not sure about it, you should do one of two things. you should. Uh, put in a request for uh, 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 information in the bidding process, or have an attorney go over the contract. Or, or, you, or, If you feel competent to do it, you go over the contract and the bid documents very clearly, carefully, to see what it says about that. Um, I'm seeing more and more cases where the state is saying, the city is saying, we have a geotechnical report, but we can't guarantee that it's gonna cover all the conditions where you're digging.
0: That just makes me mad. And I'm sure a lot of people on the phone call are thinking that too. So you also see the language in there, Scott, where it says, okay, we have taken a, uh, here's boring number six. It's taken uh, six feet offset to the right of the pipe you're going to install. And we make no guarantees that uh, anywhere outside of this you know, four inch diameter hole, the geotechnical conditions which are described uh, herein are applicable and you can rely on. So as a contractor, you know, how do you bid the work pen? I can read the geotech report, but I can't rely on it. I can look at the borings, but I can't rely on those either. So how do you make the argument once you get into a different site conditions with the fact that what you showed me isn't what I got? Nothing to rely on.
1: So again, that does become a big issue with the Board of Water Supply and others, and you need to... You need to have enough space between the cost and the contract amount to cover it. And you also need to have some generic understanding of the different areas of the island and what you're likely to find so you know just how dangerous a particular point is. I mean, dealing with raw land, we all have an understanding, I think, of you know where we're likely to encounter Blue Rock, what the conditions are in general, but in city streets (coughs) we've been building here for over a hundred years, there's a lot of stuff underneath there that's been left behind that can get in the way. And and very often, HECO and its predecessors didn't necessarily map things out correctly, and you need to know right away. And I had a case recently of of a school uh, renovation, and there were the plans of where the a wall was going to go and the contractor went out there after they got the bid and they saw these two junction boxes uh the, these two plates in the ground they knew immediately okay this is going to be a problem because this is not <laughs> there's going to be a line here that's not shown on the plans they immediately did a uh they immediately notified the state they did a one call they sounded it and they told the state the department of education this is going to be a problem because you know This is here. They entered a change order to do careful digging out to see to to show that the line was there. Then they went into the Differing Site Conditions Clause that's in effect. But you, you have to be wary. And if you're dealing in a contract where you don't have those provisions, you have to protect yourself. Again, the state generically does have the good Differing Site Condition Clause, but the Board of Water Supply doesn't, and the city doesn't. So you need to take that into account when you're putting your bid together.
0: So I have another question here for you. Um, We have another question back on force majeure, but while we're talking about different site conditions, Scott, why don't we just stay there for now? So the the question I have in front of me now is in regards to if if you're a Hawaiian contractor, especially working down by the ocean, you run into a lot of burials. So can you uh, share some of your experience with relief given or not on finding uh, human remains in your excavation?
1: Actually. I mean, there should be a contract provision that should be covered in the contract. And in most contracts these days, it is covered as something to be expected. Uh, Relief, it should be considered, let's let's put it this way. Um, If you're doing work for the city in that area, this is a condition that should be expected. And in the bidding process, you need to put in there. Um, I've seen this issue rising in private contracts, and in private contracts these days, people are putting that in there. I I haven't seen that. I've not yet seen that case in government contracts, um, how that would work. But it should be covered, and it should be covered by the differing site condition clause if you can make an argument that it wasn't expected. The problem you have here is it is expected, and there should have been an archaeological survey done prior to the excavation. So you, that needs to be in, included as something that's done, needs to be included in the bid. From If you're bidding on a contract that it's going to take place in that area, you need to protect yourself before you put in your bid by putting the state on notice, the city on notice. What do we do if we encounter EV? What is, you no. Know, should there be an excavation beforehand?
0: Okay. Um, I have another question here back on force majeure, Scott. Uh, it was asked quite a while ago, but I, I wanted to wait till we got back in force majeure. So the question reads as follows. What liability does a subcontractor have when it causes a delay Due to a force majeure event, such as COVID nineteen shutdowns of its operation of its operations in another state, if there is no force majeure clause in the contract with the general contractor, this must be a subcontractor under a GC. Asking what his rights are, I I guess when there's no force majeure clause in his contract.
1: Well, a, a lot depends on um, even if there's not a force majeure in the contract. If it's a government contract, you should look um, you should look to see whether or not there's a there's a provision in the clause that incorporates the general contract into the subcontract. You should look to see if there's a clause. There are two clauses you often see in subcontracts. One is one which incorporates the general contract into the subcontract, and then an argument can be made that the force majeure provision is part of your subcontract. The second is if there's a clause that says that the, the, the subcontractor adopts all the duties to the general contractor that the general contractor has towards the owner and vice versa, that the general contractor assumes towards the subcontractor all the duties that the owner owns causes to the general contractor. If you have either of those two provisions in the subcontract, and they're both very common, then that may be considered incorporation by reference of the force majeure provision. So don't assume that you don't have reliance on it. If it's not in there, then you might be able to rely on some of the common law provisions, commercial impracticability, commercial impossibility, frustration of purpose. There are common law provisions that deal with this, or that can be stretched to deal with this provision. Now, bear in mind also that the the general contractor is going to be put in the same position of being delayed as well, So the general contractor may then seek uh, assistance from the owner. In both cases, the subcontractor is probably not going to get any financial relief. But there are, again, between incorporation by reference through either of those two provisions or through the application of a common law uh, doctrine, such as, again, commercial impracticability or frustration of purpose. It's possible to seek some relief. One thing to bear in mind also is that force majeure does not apply if you can still do it, but the cost gets a little bit higher. Force majeure has to be very significant. It has to either prevent you from going forward or cause a major impact. If you can overcome it through through a slight additional cost, you may not be able to rely on it at all.
0: Okay, so let me ask another question here that we have um, during your presentation. Um, during your presentation, you've been making reference to two acronyms, HRS and HAR. Can you explain the difference between a, you know, what is my contract? What does that mean? But when my contract with the State Department of Transportation or the City and County of Honolulu, I have a contract with that agency. The references in my contract refer to these acronyms, HRS and HAR. What is HRS and what is HAR?
1: Okay, HRS are the Hawaii Revised Statutes. Um, And there is in the Hawaii Revised Statutes a number of laws that affect contracting. The two biggest for our purposes are the Public Procurement Code and the Contractors License Law. And they both have an effect, can have an effect on you. Now, it is possible for a contract, a contract cannot override state law unless the state law permits you to override it. Um, and you'll see that in the public procurement code. It will say, unless otherwise agreed, or unless, it, under certain circumstances, you can, you can avoid this provision of the law, but otherwise this provision of the law applies. That's the Hawaii revised statutes. It's basically all of the law in Hawaii, that state law uh, is collected in something called the Hawaii revised statute. That's everything in the criminal code, to the insurance code, the contractor's license law to the uh, uh, procurement code. Uh, The contractor's license law is chapter 444 of the Hawaii Revised Statutes. The procurement law is chapter 103D, capital D. So that's where you find these things. You can look them up online in a variety of different places. HAR refers to the Hawaii Administrative Rules and (coughs) I don't know if you know anything about federal law, but in federal law, you have the United States Code, and you have the Code of Federal Regulations, which all the agencies put out. Hawaii operates the exact same way. There will be a statute, and the statute, the Hawaii Revised Statute, will have a provision that says, we create this body, and this body will have the authority to create regulations under this law. So the Hawaii administrative rules then put into effect the Hawaii revised statutes. And um, specifically, they gave the public policy, there's a public policy law that was given the authority to write the clauses that can be used. So these different, very specific clauses the, your senators and congressmen aren't going to your senators, your congressmen, your representatives, your state senators, aren't going to sit down and write out these contract clauses because that's not their job and that's not their area of expertise. So what they do is they create a body that can then write regulations. The thing about regulations is they are also the law. A regulation has the force and effect of law. And let me give you a little example of this. Uh, somewhat. There is a body of law governing contractors, and there's a specific statute that involves home renovation and construction, and it says what needs to be in the contract. Otherwise, your contract is void, and you cannot get a mechanics lien, and you can't enforce your contract. You can only recover what you can prove the contract was worth, but there's a language in there that says, in addition, in addition to what we have in this kind, con- and just as an example, some of the things that are in that in that provision are, they have to tell people about, you know, mechanics' liens and things like that. But then it adds another line that says, and anything else that uh, the contractor's license board deems appropriate in a regulation, and the contractor's license board has issued these regulations. And these regulations include things, for example, that if you have a contract with a homeowner, you have to include the exact amount, dollar amount of the contract. That's not in the statute. And that raises the question of whether or not a time and material contract can be entered into with a homeowner. And under the law, that regulation has the same force and effect that the statute does. So HAR is the Hawaii Administrative Rules and they are the law. Uh, And another example is in terms of what you can do under your license, a vast amount of that is found in the Hawaii Administrative Rules. That's where they tell you what you can do if you have a Mason's license, what you can do if you have a cement concrete license. That's where they list out if you have a B license, what specialty licenses you automatically have. If you have an A license, what specialty licenses you automatically have. And this is important things to know before you enter into a contract, because as you know in the state, if you enter into a contract for a specialty for which you do not have a license, you can't get paid for it under any theory. So it's important to know what's covered by your license. And there's other things in there that deal with, uh, that so again. You need to. Nobody's expected to be an expert on the Hawaii administrative rules. They're they're long, they're complex. There's a lot of things in there, but if you get into an issue, you need to have somebody familiar with them who can look them up and tell you what you can and cannot do. They are the law, as much as any statute passed by the legislature. Any other questions?
0: So. One final question we have here. I don't see any other questions coming up. This might be our last question. So if anyone has a question out there, throw it in the chat box and I'll ask Scott. Uh, The last question here, if nothing else comes up, I'll throw it at you now, Scott, and that is that uh, in regards to uh, compensation for force majeure, I have a feeling your answer will say it depends, but can I rely upon uh, the suspension or partial suspension language within my contract to guide me on receiving compensation in a force majeure situation?
1: not unless the force majeure provision is included in one of the things that covers partial suspension. And again, if you look at some of the language, and the state it says if it's a force majeure provision, you don't get anything. Um, now, this is an important thing to consider in writing in your own um, contracts to include something in there that would give you some right. But by and large, unless the suspension provision includes within it specifically suspensions due to force majeure, it's not covered. Now, the question is whether or not the state is suspending contracts by this proclamation. An argument can be made that if they issue a proclamation saying all construction work stops, that's a suspension ordered by the state and you're entitled to some compensation. Obviously, this is not something that has been litigated before. So, (coughs) It's not clear what's going to happen with that.
0: Okay. Anything else, Scott, to add before I go into wrap-up mode?
1: I think that, unless anybody has any other questions, that covers what we have. And again, if anybody wants to leave a suggestion in the chat for an area that you would like to see covered in the future, please do so, and we'll take that into consideration in putting together new uh, 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 webinars.
0: Yeah, we enjoyed doing this. Um, Scott and I are happy to do more if you have any suggestions. uh, You see the information on the screen for Scott or myself. Feel free to email either of us with a suggested topic and we'll happily put it out and spend another hour or two on the phone, especially since everyone's sitting at home now um, looking for things to do. So anyway, um, that's all I have. I wanna thank everyone for spending almost an hour and a half with Scott and I. Um, Feel free to contact us outside of this session and. Um, I believe um, Tom's on the line here. Summer, our IT guy. I believe that this recording is going to be made available. But if you check back with the website yeah. that we referred you to, it will be okay. So Tom's going to make the video available question. if you'd like to. Uh, uh, thank you, Tom. So, what is considered major impact related to quote-unquote major impact related to force majeure? Where would the contract define major in terms of percent increase in cost?
1: It will not be in the contract. It'll be something that's negotiated. Um, and again, okay. that, that's been an actual impact. Um, if, if it's on the critical path and it's going to delay you, then it's force majeure. If it's going to only raise the prices, it may not even count as force majeure. Force majeure normally deals with being able to go forward. Um I will note, for an, as an example, for the suspension of the work. Um, I was just looking at that under the state provisions, whether excess bad delay is considered unsuitable for for prosecution of the work. That's both force majeure and suspension of a work provision, but um, they don't include any of the other things. So that's how it looks to me. Um,
0: okay anything else scott that's it okay looking back at the questions and thank you tom for alerting me to that so i see that that appears to be our final question so again i, I want to thank everyone and feel free to reach out to myself or scott directly uh for further ideas or other questions uh we really enjoyed this would like to do some in the future and um love to put advice out there for in discussion for, for everyone here in the hawaiian community and, and back there on the mainland too so If no one has anything else, I see nothing coming in. Thank you again, everyone, for spending an hour and a half with us, and we'll look forward to doing another seminar in the near future. Thank you again.
1: Talk to you soon, Scott.
0: Thanks, Scott.